0: Let us turn to our great God in prayer. Now, God, we, we gladly sing of how great that thou art. You are the creator of all that exists. There is nothing, there is no star, there is nothing in creation that you have not made, you have not brought into being. Indeed, as your word says, that you you are the God who calls forth the stars by name. And how wondrous truly you are in your greatness and in your sovereignty. You are not a God who has created all these things and then let them go the, uh, whatever way they may go. But you are the sovereign creator. You control the paths of the stars. You have knowledge of all things. You have known the the galaxies, the stars of millions of light years away, you have known the path that we have taken here to this very church. Nothing is too great, nothing is too small that it escapes your notice. You are a God who is far off in all of these distances. You are a God who is right here, indeed, within our very hearts. A great God that you are. You are a God who does not think of your people as being too small to save. Though we are but a few people, we live in a small planet. But you have made us in your image. You have never forgotten us, even as we have rebelled against you. Even when in your holiness and your righteousness, it would have been just for you to have done away with us and with this world. Yet you, by your mercy, have continued not only to allow us to live, to allow this world to go on, but as has already been sung, that there's much in this world that is of great beauty, and you love all creatures, however great or small they may seem to be. We thank you for the great costly love that has been shown to us through Jesus Christ. And what love is this that you, our great God, our Father, would send God the Son, who would willingly come? Not only has He delivered us; He has purchased purchased us with His own shed blood. Now, far be it that any of us; few of us would do that for anyone. We may do that for friends, for our country, for those who. Things that we believe in, none of us would do it for our enemies. None of us fathers would have sent our own children. What tremendous love this is. We thank you humbly and give you praise for such wondrous love as this. We confess that oftentimes we live as though this sacrifice was never made. We think that you accept us by how good that we are and how hard that we work and that we deserve our salvation. Or we we live as though it's not a worthwhile life to have. And we have given in to the pleasures of this world and we have uh, bought in and have believed what the world would tell us. That you have not made us. That you have no claim on us. That this offer of eternal life is, is nothing. Father, forgive us that we would live in such a way, that we would believe in such a way. And all the more we, we cling to our Lord Jesus Christ, who alone has made the offering, the sacrifice, as acceptable for our salvation. Oh, we thank you and praise you for him. And we pray for him. Your gospel, again, to go forth throughout this world, that that hope may be given to others, that light to areas where there is so much darkness. We thank you for how you have called many for full-time ministry. We uh, thank you for, uh, for Glenn Wilkins and for his family, as he is soon to be uh, graduating from seminary and appears to be... Able to go and to do church planting, we pray for your blessing and upon him and his wife, and for their ministry that they will have. We thank you for the the ministries that take place uh, in our own community in our presbytery. We thank you for our brother uh, who is with us, worshiping with us today, of David Todd and his heart for evangelism, his heart for the lost to to know the salvation of Christ, and we pray your blessing upon uh, his ministry with evangelism explosion and and pray that that will prosper especially in this area of Georgia. And then our Father, on this great weekend of Memorial Day, our thoughts and our minds, they they go to uh, those who have gone before us to protect this country, to those who have lost their lives because of believing in the freedoms and the truths of this country that you have given here, that you've raised up in this country. And we thank you for those men and women, and we pray for the, their memory to, to carry on. We pray for what they fought for to carry on, for these truths of, of, of liberty and of equality and, and of having the freedoms that we possess, particularly that freedom to, to worship you as we do even now. And we pray for those who are serving us even now in the military. and We pray for your protection of them, for your blessings upon them, and we praying for their salvation. And you have placed many chaplains uh, in the military for that very purpose. And we pray that through their witness, that there will be those who are brought into your kingdom. We pray that for those who already know you and for the effectiveness of their witness, to their comrades in arms. So, our Father, we look for ourselves now. You have brought each one of us here. We have our our reasons for coming, but you had a reason for bringing us here. Your Spirit, we pray, will go forth as your word is proclaimed, that it is proclaimed with power, and that you would raise us up to hear it, to understand it, to look to our Lord Jesus Christ, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, our scripture uh, this morning is Leviticus 16, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 22. Now, if you're using the Bibles there, you'll find in the chairs, you'll find them on page 83. Uh, Leviticus 16:15 to 22, you will also find the passage as an insert in your bulletin. And uh, you're welcome to use that uh, to follow along and also to, to take notes. Now we're in a series here called Jesus in the Old Testament. And we are in an imaginative way we're listening in to Jesus as he is walking on the road to Emmaus. This is the day of his resurrection. He's walking with two disciples who do not know who he is who think that Jesus has remained buried, or that he's dead anyhow. Actually, they know that the grave is empty and they can't explain it. And he is explaining to them how all these things, his sufferings, his death, and his resurrection, that's all there, back there in their scriptures in the Old Testament. If they just had the eyes, the mind for understanding, they would see how all of this is fitting in. And it says that he, he spoke of things concerning himself and Moses and the prophets. And we've seen already in Genesis how he would have said, Look, I am that offspring of Eve that was promised, and I was going who came and bruised or crushed the serpent's head and had my own healed of uh, bruised. Uh, I am that Redeemer that all of Israel has been looking for ever since you had Moses redeem you from out of Egypt, and you've been looking for this new Redeemer to come. That's what I did. That's what I did there on the cross. And now he's going to take them to a text that explains how this deliverance took place through the, by purchasing them with his blood. And indeed, you know, all these other times, he... he the disciples, when, they, when he had mentioned the offspring, when he had mentioned the Redeemer, they would have been going, oh, I, I get it now. Yes, yes, I, that's what we've been looking for, and now you've corrected our understanding. But it's this next text, and here's the irony of it, this next text is the clearest one of all. It explains so clearly the work of the Messiah, but it'd be the one text that never would have entered the disciples or any of the Jews' minds that this applied to the Messiah. So with that in mind, let me, let me just give a few words of introduction first. This text in Leviticus presents the origin of Yom Kippur, you know, the Day of Atonement. Our Jewish neighbors every year, somewhere t- typically would around October or so on, celebrate Yom Kippur. That's the Day of Atonement. This is the origin of it. God had, through Moses, we know that He presented this elaborate system of of offerings and, and sacrifices, and they had all kinds of different functions for them. But there was one underlying premise that was summed up in these words that are repeated several times in Leviticus that gives this system Be holy, for I am holy. That's what it was all about. God is holy. Now, it is true that God is love, and that was beautifully sung this morning, but that love is to be understood to be in conformity with the holiness of God. And so when God gave the plans for his tabernacle, you know, which would later become the, that permanent temple, he, he had two inner rooms, two primary rooms in that temple that you would walk into. First is what was called the holy place. Priests who are ministering, uh, before the Lord. They can come in there. And then there's the most holy place or the holy of holies. It's separated from the main room by these large curtains, two curtains there. Okay. And there in that latter room, that was considered the throne room of God. And God's throne room, what was represented there above all things is his holiness. Okay. So God is holy. Therefore, his people must be holy. Now we're getting to the necessity of redemption. If God is to dwell with his people, if they are to dwell with God, then they must be holy. When God redeemed the Hebrews from bondage to Egypt, it wasn't simply that you know, well, he just felt bad for them, and he wanted them to be free. It wasn't just like, kind of like the American Revolution. and He just wanted us to have liberty and, and to pursue happiness however it may be that we, we find it. Now, he had a purpose for them. And he, he says it here. Let me read it to you from Exodus 19. This is, this is just before he gives the Ten Commandments. He says, "...you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians." and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, there is an obvious problem here. The Hebrews were not holy. They were sinners. How then can God dwell among them? How can they be with God? And that's what presents then this elaborate sacrificial system. It had two purposes there, two means here. One is you develop a system by which objects, things, uh, could be consecrated and people could be consecrated And what that simply means is that it was set off for God and then protected from becoming unclean. And those objects would be placed in the temple. Those people were the priests. They could enter into the temple. And so everything there is going to be cleansed so it can be used for holy purposes. And the second means address that next obvious problem, which is simply this. How do you keep these these consecrated items and people from beginning, tainted. Okay, They come in contact with sinners. They come in t- contact with things that are unclean. And now they're no longer holy. So you, you need holy things. You need to keep them holy if they can come into the presence of God. So there needed to be a system, kind of this big, elaborate, hygienic system to keep everything clean, to remove the stain, to remove the guilt of sin. Well, that system revolved around all of these sacrifices we read about in Leviticus that we hear about taking place in the temple. So it's through the shedding of blood, through the shedding of blood of innocent and unblemished sacrifices that the tabernacle itself, all of its objects, the servants, they would be sprinkled with the blood, they could be consecrated for holy service to God. Okay. And then when sin defile the God's holy objects in his blood, again, you do these sacrifices, they make restitution for the sins, the so people are holy again, they're sprinkled with that sacrificial blood until they become unclean again, and then you do it once again. It's an elaborate, and it's a very burdensome system, isn't it? It required constant vigilance. You've got to maintain the purity of the tabernacle because the tabernacle represents God's presence. And uh, you've got to have constant vigilance and to keep offering these sacrifices every day throughout the day, morning and evening. And then you have the Day of Atonement, which basically is this. The Day of Atonement is saying, all right, we've missed somebody somewhere. There are people who committed sins. There's something we didn't catch. We're going to have this Day of Atonement that just covers everybody. Covers everything. All the sins that happened throughout all the year. And that's why we have this Day of Atonement. So without a long introduction, let's begin reading our text. Here in verse 15 of chapter 16. Then he, that's Aaron, the high priest, shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is, for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. And in this case, it means the holy of holies. They're right there in that throne room. Because of the uncleannesses of the people of Israel, and because of their transgressions, all their sins, And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. That's the tabernacle. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he, the high priest, enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it uh, with his finger seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it for the uncleannesses of the people of Israel. Okay. And again, as I mentioned, that he, that's the high priest. In this case, it's Aaron. Here's what he's done. He, He has sacrificed a goat. And he sacrificed that goat to accomplish those two purposes I've already talked about. With that blood, he sprinkles the holy items in the tabernacle. He takes it inside. He he sprinkles it around. He goes into the holy of holies. There's the mercy seat. He sprinkles it on there uh, as well as the altar that's outside where the sacrifices are made. He's purifying those things. He's setting them apart. He's cleansing those objects so that they can be used in service of the Lord. That's what it means when it says make atonement for the, the, for the holy place. These items are literally sprinkled, covered with the blood of the sacrifice. That's how they're cleaned. Now remember, there's another objective though. That other objective is making restitution on behalf of the people for their sins, okay? They're sinners. They've blown it again. And that sacrifice serves as the substitute. The, the, the high priest, just before he cuts the throat of that sacrifice, he prays on that, and he's bringing the sins of the people, placing it on that goat, and that's he's taking their sins. That's what the second goat is going to teach us about. The second goat is an object lesson, a way for us to see what happens with our sins. So look with me again in verse 20. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. There were two goats, one's killed, one stays alive. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it, all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. And and by the hand of a man who is in readiness, the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area. And he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Okay. Again, that second goat, He's visibly representing what the first goat accomplished. Okay, again, that high priest, he's got the goat, he lays his hands on that goat, and he says something in effect of, may, may the iniquities of God's people, of the people of Israel be placed upon this goat. He's transferring it. The goat becomes what? Scapegoat. That's where we get that term, scapegoat. He takes the blame. And then he is led off into the wilderness. We're not sure what actually happens to that goat afterwards. All we know is this: he disappears out of our sight. Okay? So the people are, as they watch that goat led into the wilderness, they know they'll never see him again. They know that their sins are, they're gone. But they're also watching one other thing besides their sins just kind of disappearing. They are looking at what would have happened to them if those sins had not been transferred to the goat. Throughout the book of Leviticus, it talks about all these laws and rules. Very often it will say, if somebody does such and such, they will be cut off from the people of God. They, they they, They can no longer be among God's people. They're cut off. So the people, again, were watching this scapegoat bear their sins and watch that scapegoat be cut off from God's covenant. That, Jesus would have told his disciples, that's what happened on the cross. That's what happened to the Messiah who shed his blood for the people's sins, who bore their sins. He was that sacrifice on the cross. And on that cross, he was cut off. From the land of the living, from God's people, from God's sight. He atoned for their sins. He was there, and if you have your little insert, I'm going to mention those two long words on there. He was their propitiation and their expiation. And let me talk a little bit about those long theological words. The first one is actually in the Bible. He was their propitiation. What that means is that he appeased the just wrath of God for the people's offense. God is angered when we sin. He is righteously angered. You know what was the instigation of the Day of Atonement? There was something that actually happened. And uh, what it was is Aaron had two sons. They go and they come up with a good imaginative way to prepare an offering to God and they put it on the incense, on the fire, and God strikes them down dead. Because they had had given unauthorized fire or unauthorized way of doing an offering. They had sinned and God was angry because his law was violated. That's what atonement is doing. It is it is appeasing that wrath for that anger that God has for the sins we committed. I mentioned that the Bible uses that term. There are three times it uses that term. Romans 3.25, where it speaks of Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. It speaks in Hebrews 2.17 and 1 John 2.2 of Jesus making a propitiation, appeasing God's wrath. How does he appease God's wrath? He takes it upon himself. Sacrifice had to be made. He became that sacrifice. Now, the Messiah was also their expiation. And what this means is that he atoned for or he made amends for their sins. It's what we mean. You know, when we've done something wrong, let me come up with a wild hypothetical thing. Maybe a husband does something that upsets his wife and what does he say? Besides, I'm sorry, I'll make it up to you. I'll make it up. That's expiation. The scapegoat was that visual symbol of the sacrificial goat. He's going to make it up to God so that the sins are regarded as no longer existing. They've gone away. And again, this is the reason for the sufferings and the cross. That is how Jesus would have concluded his lesson uh, in Leviticus with the disciples. Now let's turn to us. What Jesus is impressing upon his two disciples is this, it's how his work on the cross, it had been foreshadowed all along. There had been this big object lesson all along by Israel's sacrificial system. And no doubt, these two disciples, when he'd explained this, they would have made the connection. All the puzzle pieces would have fit together. Oh, yeah, I, I get it now. God is holy. They understood that. His people must be holy. They understood that too. That's what the sacrificial system had been teaching them. His people are not holy. Okay, therefore, we have to make sacrifices. Oh, I see now the cross is that supreme sacrifice made so that his people truly would be made holy. Yes, I see how it all fits. It would have made sense because they had that sacrificial system. We don't grow up in that kind of society, do we? I mean, the killing of animals, the shedding of their blood, at least for those of us who are not hunters, it's an alien world to us. And for many of us, it's just outright offensive, this idea of bloody sacrifices. I mean, there are many who reject Christianity for that reason alone. They understand the cross symbolizes for them a they think a a wrathful, bloodthirsty God, a God who is so bloodthirsty that he would send his own son to be sacrificed. Now, I can understand these sentiments. I mean, you know, you can can see that um, yeah, it's pretty bloody, isn't it? pretty terrible? But what this thinking really stems from is simply this: We believe that we really aren't that bad, and we don't when we think about God, think of God as loving, yeah, he, he's holy. He's not that holy. In other words, the modern view of God is like this. God is hes like us. He's like us grandparents. You know, we wish the kids would behave better. You know, a number of things they could do better, but we easily forgive. We easily forget. In other words, we have done a good job of making God in our own image. And so the value of the scriptures in the Old Testament in this regard is that they project for us a clearer, true understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness. And because God has to speak to us in words that we can understand, He has to present Himself in ways that we can comprehend, you know, this gets confusing. Our understanding is going to be limited. I mean most of us, I mean, can't shake this concept of wrath. You know, you mentioned wrath. And that makes us think of just mere vengefulness, you know. We can't help but seeing ourselves, even when we say we're sinners, well, we're not really that bad. We're reasonably good people, you know, even as we admit that we're sinners. And so we, we look at those sacrifices. God appears to us like, you know, he's so unreasonable, he's malicious, he, he's like those other cultures around Israel. But if we would take the effort we take the effort to get through these kind of shallow, simplistic views, and we really listen to what the Old Testament is conveying to us. Here's where we we get to this we come to the greater truths so of what's happening there on that cross. We get to the truth that God is holy. He really is holy. It's not just talk, it's the essence of his nature. He cannot He will not abide sin in any form of any degree. And to think that we can come into his presence without atonement for sin is to invite death. That's it. That's the way that it is. You know, that day of atonement, it was the only day of the year that the high priest could actually go into the Holy of Holies. And when he does, the Lord instructs Moses, he's going to tell Aaron that if he goes into that most holy place any other time, he will die. And even then, when he enters on that day, if he does not follow the precise instructions, he will die. The high priest was a sinner. In fact, what he had to do before he did all of this, he had to go make sacrifices for his own sins before he can make sacrifices or atonement for anyone else's sins. God is holy. And the seraphim, those angels with the, the, what, three pairs of wings, they have to cover their eyes. They cannot even bear to look straight at God in his holy temple. And what they do while they're in that temple, they call out, Holy, holy, holy is the, the Lord God. That's God's holiness. And those angels who have been in the presence of God, there are times when they would have visited God's people. What happens when they do? The humans are filled with fear because they see a taste, a reflection of the holiness of God. No man can look upon God and live because of this holiness. It's real, it's tangible. God is holy. And anyone who then is going to be accepted by him, who come into his presence, must be holy. But we have the same problem, don't we? We're not holy. And so Isaiah, when God appears before him in a vision, and he has this vision of being in the heavenly temple of uh, of God, and he he sees those angels going, holy, 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 here's what he says. He doesn't say, wow, How neat this is, or how great this is. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, and now he is expecting to be put to death. But again, are we really that bad? You know, we look at the Ten Commandments, and most of us, we rate ourselves fairly high. I, I still remember in a Sunday school class. And we're studying the Ten Commandments. And one church member, he said, well, I keep all these commandments. Yeah, I mean, I don't commit adultery. I haven't murdered anyone. He could even say to himself, anyhow, that he did not lie. Well, let me say this. If you, if you should have the same delusion as this confident friend, I tell you the best thing to do you know we have a larger catechism you know we have the Westminster Confession of Faith larger and shorter catechism get you a copy or you can go online or I'll get you a copy turn to the section on the Ten Commandments by the larger catechism it will nail you it will nail you you can't breathe without sinning for all the things that they list there but see that's what the that's what the This system of laws and sacrifices, that's what they were intending to portray. The law after law after law, the transgression after transgression after transgression of the law, they were intended to ingrain in us that our feeble attempts to be holy are futile. We can't do it. We cannot live up to that, to the holiness, the righteous standards of the holy God. It cannot be done. And so the temple with the sacrificial system and all of the laws are meant to lead us to the same conclusion that Isaiah had had. We should be saying, woe is me, for, for I am lost, I am a man or I am a woman of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and someday I must appear before the king, the holy lord of hosts. What am I going to do? Again, there's still many out here who would say, well, that's that's not how I see my God or myself. Well, it does not matter how you see God or yourself. What matters is how God sees you, how God sees himself. And here in these scriptures, in the Old Testament, with all these details about the temple and sacrifices and laws, This is the presentation of God to all who will have the ears to hear. God is holy. We must be holy. We are sinners. Those sins must be atoned for if we are ever to appear before him. And someday we will appear. You know, I mentioned the Israelites depended upon their high priest to make that atonement for them on the Day of Atonement. They depended upon a lot of priests to to mediate for them and to, to offer sacrifices in the temple. They dare not enter in because what would have happened? They would have died. God was too holy, they too sinful. But here is the news of the gospel the Messiah has come. And he is both the sacrifice and the high priest who offers his sacrifice. Listen to what we have in him from Hebrews 9. Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, not this earthly temple, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You know, what this passage is telling us is that what we have always thought was the real thing is the shadow. What we have always thought of just kind of a a picture, that is the real thing. See, the earthly temple, that's just a shadow of the real heavenly temple of God. Those physical bloody sacrifices, they're just object lessons of the real sacrifice. The high priest, all those other priests, they're just actors. They are portraying the real high priest of God, Jesus Christ. He's our real high priest. He's our real sacrifice. He has made the real atonement for all of our sins. He has entered into the holy of holies of the true temple of God and he has made atonement with his blood. And here's the real marvel of it all. You know how I mentioned the people even after those sacrifices are made, they could never enter the temple. Our Holy Spirit has torn apart the veil, the curtain, that separated us from the Holy of Holies. You know, it's funny, after the temple was built, no one ever saw the mercy seat. That's the gold lid that covers the Ark of Covenant. Right there on that seat, the reason they were never allowed to go see it, that's where God was. Even when the high priest would go in there once a year, he never looked at it. He'd go in with this censer thing that would have smoke and it would cover over everything so he couldn't actually see it. That's because he was a sinner, but our high priest was not. Even when he bore our sins. And he went into the presence of God, his Father, and now he's opened the way that we can follow him in. You know how ironic it was, isn't it? That what was called the mercy seat brought judgment to anybody who actually came before it. But because of our Messiah, through the blood of our Messiah, well, hear what God's Word has to say in Hebrews 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one in whom every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. He's talking about the mercy seat, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You ever feel like you're unworthy, that you're too sinful to come before God, that he will pay no attention to you? Well, if Jesus is your high priest, he has opened a way for you and he bids you to come and he tells you that when you become before that mercy seat, you will not find judgment You will not die, but you will find mercy. You will find the grace to help you in your time of need. And it is for any, for any, who would call upon his name. Let's pray. We thank you, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, who has entered into the holy of holies and has made atonement for our sins, who bid us now to follow after him that we may truly know your love, know how great that love is, and we see how the holy God shows mercy to such sinners as we. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.